0: This is the Rick Edelman Show. Barron's ranks Edelman Financial Engines the number one independent investment advisor in the country. And Rick is in the Barron's Financial Advisor Hall of Fame. Now, here's Rick Edelman.
1: And a very happy weekend to you. Welcome to the Rick Edelman Show. We've got a lot to chat with you about today. Uh, we're going to talk about some important financial planning issues, including, as we approach year-end, some important news for you in the world of investing and your strategy, and lots of your phone calls today as well. So uh, buckle up your seatbelt, and uh, let's get started. First, uh, I want to begin with a, a little bit of a celebration here at Edelman Financial Engines, Tech Staffer Magazine. Has just announced the top five retirement investment firms in the U.S., saying these firms specifically focus on retirement planning for employees of Fortune 500 companies, assisting employees when they're transitioning into retirement. The editors considered key services that these firms offer, the quality of their customer service, and the free educational materials that the firms provide to workers. They focused on firms working for major corporations who serve workers ages 50 to 70 who have half a million or more to invest. And with 7 out of 10 investors saying that they think inflation is going to negatively affect their pension plans and their 401ks and their health care costs, the TechStaffer rankings more timely than ever, and I'm really excited to announce that Edelman Financial Engines was ranked number three in the ranking. Yeah! TechStaffer gave the highest weighting in determining the rankings to the extent that the firms specialize in corporate retirement plans, the amount of complimentary free services they provide, their cash flow analysis they do for each worker, and the number of years they've been in business. So we're very excited to be ranked in the top three by TechStaffer magazine. Last week on the program, I mentioned the work that we're doing at the Stanford Center on Longevity in the development of the new map of life. You know, we all experience our travels through this map. Uh, We're born, we go to school, we go to work, we retire, we die. We do things pretty much in that order. And we've been doing it that way ever since the industrial age began more than 100 years ago. Well, that worked for the last 100 years because life expectancies were relatively stable But now that we're all retiring at 65 and living to 85 and soon we'll be living to age 100, well, that map of life really doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, does it really make any sense to put 40 percent of your life in the retirement category? I mean, where are you going to get the money to be retired for 40 years? And and what are you going to do with all that time? So Stanford is working hard on developing a new map of life that reflects today's longevity and the increases that are widely expected over the next couple of decades. I've been serving on the advisory board at the Center on Longevity for quite some time, and we're really excited to announce that this week, the Stanford Center on Longevity has officially launched the new map of life. You can read all about it. You can look at the details. Go to longevity.stanford.edu or just Google search Stanford Center on Longevity. You'll get all the info there so you can see in detail the work that we're doing and how we think it's going to have a big impact on your life. Think about this. If you are in your 50s, planning for retirement in the next decade, what are you going to do after that? Well, you need to start thinking about it because in the old days it was easy. Retire at 62, dead at 65. Well, if you're going to live to 85 or 95 or 105, We need to rethink this. Even more important for your kids and grandkids who are beginning their careers, if they're in their teens, 20s, 30s, how are they handling their lives and the map that they're laying out? It's time to rethink that map of life and Stanford's leading the way. So I encourage you to go to longevity.stanford.edu. Another truism that has been applied in the financial planning profession for years, ever since, frankly, I've been in this business, and that's pushing four decades now, has been the notion of what we call the 4% rule. Here's the question. How much of your portfolio can you withdraw on an annual basis without running out of money? This is a pretty key question, isn't it? If you're facing retirement, you want to know how much you can withdraw and support yourself from your portfolio. So let's say that you've got a million dollars saved up through hard work, delayed gratification, self-sacrifice. and You've done a really good job and the financial markets have helped you along. And you've amassed a huge amount of money, a million dollars. How much of that can you withdraw on an annual basis so that you don't run out of money before you die? Traditionally, the financial planning community has used what we call the 4% rule. You can withdraw 4% per year and be reasonably confident that you won't run out of money. Of course, there is no guarantee to any of this, and we certainly know past performance doesn't guarantee future results, but this has been the basic premise on which financial planners often work. In other words, if you've got a million dollars in your account, you can withdraw 40000 a year. And then you can increase that based on inflation on an annual basis. This assumes that you have an equal mix of stocks and bonds in your portfolio and also assumes that you need the money to last for 30 years. But is that 4% rule still valid? Well, Morningstar has just issued a new report saying no, because Morningstar says returns are not going to be as high over the next 30 years as they have been for the past 30 years. And therefore, if you want to make sure you don't run out of money before you die, especially taking into consideration we're likely to live longer, which means the money has to last longer, instead of withdrawing 4% per year, Morningstar says to withdraw 3.3% per year. Ah! In other words, instead of getting 40 grand out of that million dollar portfolio annually, you're only going to get $33,000. Now, a couple of things you need to identify about this. This withdrawal rate assumes that you want your principal to remain intact. In other words, if you've got a million dollars today at 65, you withdraw 4% a year, or according to Morningstar, 3.3% a year, and in 30 years, the million dollars is still there. Well, do you really need that to be the case? A lot of folks want it to be that way, so you can leave that million dollars as an inheritance to your children. But if you don't have children, or they're already doing very well, thank you very much, or you're done supporting those spoiled little rotten brats, you don't need to have a million dollars in your account when you die. You need the account to be simply above zero. You don't want to run out of money, but it doesn't matter how much money is actually left. On that basis, you could actually withdraw more than 4% a year. You could withdraw 5 or 6 or 7 or 8% a year. Depending on your life expectancy, your projected longevity, and your attitude about leaving a balance for heirs definitely adjusts how much you need to withdraw on an annual basis. Also, keep in mind, these numbers aren't set in stone. Morningstar, you know, is not Moses, and there's nothing here in stone tablets. In other words, on an annual basis, you can make changes. You can change the composition of the portfolio. It doesn't have to stay 50-50 stocks and bonds. It could change. You could increase the amount of stocks or decrease the amount. You can also increase the amount you withdraw in a given year because of higher expenses in one year compared to others. And it also doesn't take into consideration the need for an occasional lump sum withdrawal. It also doesn't take into consideration income you'll get from other sources, such as Social Security, a pension, or part-time gig, where you might work on a part-time basis, earning 10 or 15 grand a year to supplement your retirement. In other words, the situation is rather complex. There are a lot of levers you have to consider pulling to determine exactly how much money can you withdraw from your retirement accounts, where, in fact, should you withdraw the money from first, That's a biggie, because you probably have money in more than one account. You probably have money in a taxable account. You probably have money in retirement accounts at work, as well as IRA accounts. You might also have money in annuities. So different buckets of money have different tax treatment. They also have different implications for estate planning purposes. So not only do you have to figure out how much money to withdraw, you also have to figure out which account to withdraw the money from. And this is why... You shouldn't try this at home. You should enlist the services of a financial advisor who is skilled in all three of these issues. Asset allocation, how much of your money should be in stocks versus bonds as you enter retirement and throughout your retirement? Second, how much money should you withdraw on an annual basis to reduce the risk you'll run out of money before you die? And third, which of your accounts should you withdraw the money from and in what order? Let's make sure we get it right, because you only get one shot at this. And if that sounds daunting, well, yeah, it is. And that's why the financial advisors at Edelman Financial Engines are here to help. Just call 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at ricestelman.com. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money. Stay with us for more here on the program. We'll be right back.
0: The author of the 2008 Personal Finance Book of the Year, The Lies About Money, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: Back to the Rick Edelman show. Last week I told you that General Electric is splitting itself into three separate companies. Well, guess who's on the bandwagon now? Toshiba. They're going to split themselves into three separate companies, too an infrastructure company, an electronic devices company, and the third will keep the Toshiba name, and that'll be a flash memory company. Tech for sure. And that's not all. Johnson & Johnson announced they're going to split itself up. 135 years old, the company was founded in 1886. They're going to split themselves into two companies, consumer products and a medical company. Clearly, the trend for international corporate conglomerates is gone, and people want specificity. They want a one-trick pony. They want a company that does one thing really well, as opposed to an amalgam of a whole lot of things, maybe none of them all that great. Also last week, I told you that Bitcoin was going mainstream. Digital assets, cryptocurrency, is becoming a common nomenclature in society. And I gave you a lot of examples of that last week. Well, here are some more this week. The Staples Center in Los Angeles, home of NBA's Lakers and Clippers and the NHL's Kings and the WNBA's Sparks. Well, the Staples Center is no longer going to be the Staples Center. Crypto.com is paying $700 million to secure the naming rights for the next 20 years. And NYDIG, the New York Digital Investment Group, is now sponsoring the Houston Rockets, and they're going to pay the team in Bitcoin. So you're going to be seeing crypto companies and digital assets providers more and more frequently at every sporting event you can think of. Oh, and it's also getting increasingly common for people to donate in Bitcoin. The Sun Valley Community Church, with 10,000 members, now accepts online donations in Bitcoin. They said, quote, We're just trying to keep up with the way people prefer to give, and younger people don't carry cash. We want to be accommodating to ways that people are transacting. Sun Valley Church even has a lead director of Digital Strategies. And OnlineGiving.org says they know of 40 churches around the country that take Bitcoin, Litecoin, Dash, and DoggyCoin. Churches from California to South Carolina. So, clearly, Bitcoin and digital assets are going mainstream. But when you see that happening, it also creates the opportunity for silliness and, frankly, outright fraud. Silliness? Yeah, I'll give you one clear example of this. Your house rose in value since 2019, pretty dramatically. But LendingTree now says that instead of keeping your home, if you had sold it in 2019 and used the money to buy Bitcoin, today you'd have a million dollars more than you actually have.
0: Well, that's great. That's just great. I thought all the nuts went home after Labor Day.
1: I mean, you've got to be kidding me. LendingTree, a company known for engagement in the real estate and mortgage industry, is trying to tell us that we should have bought Bitcoin in 2019. And if we had, if we had sold our house to buy Bitcoin, we'd have more money today. That is classic hindsight. What on earth does owning a home have to do with buying Bitcoin? Look, you know I'm a big fan of Bitcoin, but this is downright silly, and it could cause people to reach the wrong conclusion. Anybody who would ever contemplate selling their home in order to buy Bitcoin, well, that's just downright silly. This demonstrates the dangers of digital assets. There's a lot of legitimacy to this marketplace, a lot of very serious-minded people building responsible companies that have tremendous benefit for global commerce that will revolutionize the way that we transact money with individuals between each other when we're buying goods and services and moving money around the world. A lot of it is quite legitimate and very exciting, hence my enthusiasm for the digital asset and blockchain space. But at the same time, there are some players out there that are exploiting all of this for their own personal gain. Please, keep your head about yourself. And oh, by the way, you need to make sure you're getting... Good financial advice about all of this. One way you can protect yourself against the frauds and the scams that permeate every financial market. I mean, you don't find con artists only in the world of Bitcoin. They're equally out there in the world of bonds and stocks and real estate and gold. They're, you know, Crooks are found pretty much everywhere. We know that. It helps to be working with a skilled financial advisor. Think Advisor Magazine asked eight financial advisors how they view Bitcoin. And I'm going to cite the quotes of three of these eight advisors because they serve a very good message for the rest of us. When you go get advice from a financial advisor, it's important to make sure that the advisor knows what they're talking about. We want to avoid bias, prejudice, misconceived notions, and outright myths so that the advice we're getting is legitimate. Monica Dwyer of Harvest Financial Advisors in Westchester, Ohio, was quoted by ThinkAdvisor magazine as saying, quote, there are viruses that can wipe out your wallet. That's not true. There are no viruses, there are hackers, there are ways that you can lose your digital assets or the wallet that holds them, but there aren't viruses that can wipe out your wallet, at least none that I have ever heard of or come across. Michael Palazzo of Fintentional in Birmingham, Michigan says, quote, my advice hasn't changed about digital assets. I have not started any due diligence research. Let me get this straight. You're giving advice, your advice hasn't changed, but you admit that you haven't done any research? Why would you hire a financial advisor who admits that they have never done research, they don't know anything about the subject, but yet they have advice and their advice hasn't changed? As you're hiring advisors, make sure you're hiring advisors who know what they're talking about. And Chris Chan of Insight Financial Strategists in Newton, Massachusetts says, quote, Bitcoin is worse than gold because it has no industrial applications. That statement is flat out false. Bitcoin and digital assets have thousands of commercial use cases. This is why the asset class is so exciting to so many. For someone to offer a statement that is flat incorrect demonstrates they don't know what they're talking about and calls into question the reliability of their advice, not only in this area, but in every area of personal finance. You need to make sure you're working with a financial advisor who knows what they're talking about. And if you don't have one, you're invited to turn to the advisors at Edelman Financial Engines. Call us at 888-PLAN-RICK or visit us online at rickedelman.com. You're listening to the Rick Edelman Show. I enjoy bringing you the latest in exponential technologies, subjects involving artificial intelligence, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, biotech, big data—you name it. There's so many innovations coming, affecting virtually every aspect of life on the planet. We've got big problems in our world, as we know, and technology is going to deliver the answers for us. Here's a couple of illustrations. Electric vehicles, we know that that's a hot topic, get rid of those combustion engines which are spewing poisonous gas into our atmosphere. The problem with electric vehicles is that they run on batteries. The problem there, car companies are running out of the raw materials that are needed to make those batteries. But scientists have recently discovered four new materials that might help. But these discoveries weren't made by humans. They were discovered by software, artificial intelligence. Yeah, researchers used AI to pick out useful chemicals from a list of more than 300 options. The AI was able to sift through the list, figure out combinations that might prove a value in the effort to create materials that could lead to battery technology, and saved researchers huge amounts of time and massive amounts of money. AI making discoveries humans can't do themselves. Well, there's now research that has really benefited one woman who is blind. She can now see shapes and letters for the first time in 16 years. This is thanks to a visual prosthesis that was implanted into her brain. The patient volunteered to be the first person to have a tiny electrode with 100 microneedles implanted into the visual region of her brain. She then spent six months going to the lab every day for four hours a day for tests and training. And she can now see horizontal and vertical patterns, including letters of the alphabet. This isn't the ideal, but it's one heck of a tremendous step. And we're seeing greater future potential as we develop technologies that will allow people with visual impairments to be able to see once again, sometimes for the very first time. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money, 888-PLAN-RICK. That's triple eight seven five two sixty seven forty two. Or if you prefer, just record your question on your smartphone and then send me your recording to askrick at rickedelman.com. Whatever way is easy for you, we're happy to help.
0: On personal finance, sign up for Rick's email update at RickEdelman.com.
1: Welcome back to the Rick Edelman Show. We're uh, talking about crazy advice from people who purport to know what they're talking about when in fact they haven't really admitted to you, and perhaps even to themselves, that they aren't as knowledgeable in a given area as they may think they are, hope they are, or which you might expect that they are. And this raises the issue of, are you paying for advice like that? And are you getting the value for the advice that you're paying You know, these days, financial advisors uh, increasingly charge an annual fee, not commissions. Uh, Investors have made their preferences known over the past couple of decades. You don't like to pay commissions. And that's understandable. Why not? Because when you pay commissions, the advisor the broker makes money, whether you make money or not. And you always have to wonder about the nature of their advice. Are they telling you to buy and sell because you should or simply because they're trying to earn a commission? When you're dealing with a fee-based advisor where the compensation isn't tied to trading activity, it mitigates that particular conflict of interest. And many advisors have a fee that is based on the value of the account. So as the account goes up, the fee goes up, the compensation goes up. As the account goes down, the fee goes down, the compensation goes down. In other words, that puts the advisor on the same side of the table as you. You want your account value to go up, and so does your advisor. So everybody's equally motivated to have your account do well. So it's increasingly common that you encounter advisors who charge an annual fee. That's how Edelman Financial Engines does it, and it's very, very common. But according to the SEC... Advisors who charge you an annual fee are supposed to be providing you with ongoing advice. And that's a question you need to ask. Do you have an account with a fee-based advisor who you no longer talk to? This is what's called an orphan account. Many advisors have orphan accounts. You know, it could be because your advisor left the firm and your account is still with the firm but your advisor is not there and there's nobody really that you're working with or you don't really need the services of the advisor you're happy to leave the account there but you don't really need any particular help or there's nothing really going on orphan accounts by the, in and of itself it's not a problem they're very very common but when an advisor has an orphan account on their books they're not supposed to be billing their annual fee because the annual fee is for ongoing advice and service. And if they're not providing you ongoing advice, they shouldn't be charging you their ongoing fee. The SEC this week just fined Regal Investment Advisors in Michigan nearly $1 million. They discovered that the firm had 81 orphaned clients but was still charging their annual fee. And this is a significant Concern. So firms are supposed to be on top of this, identifying if an account is orphan, stopping their annual fee, and clients should be aware that you should be paying only literally for what you're getting. So it raises the question for some clients, well, gee, if there's a risk that my advisor might be charging me a fee, even though I'm not getting much in service, maybe I should just fire the advisor. Maybe I should just go to, oh, I don't know, um, directly to mutual funds on my own. Well, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the right answer. In fact, there's a lawsuit now against the American Century Value Fund. This is a mutual fund with $2.5 billion in assets. The lawsuit's charging that the fund was assessing excessive fees for active management, buying and selling stocks to produce higher than average returns. But the lawsuit contends that the mutual fund is really just an index fund, that its portfolio pretty much tracks a market index, and therefore shouldn't be charging the fees that it's charging. You know, I first talked about this in my book, The Lies About Money, back in 2007. This closet indexing, where an actively managed fund is really, in fact, acting like an index. There's nothing new here, but this is the first lawsuit of its kind in the U.S. The lawsuit says 90% of the fund's return can be explained by its benchmark, not the manager's decisions, and the fund is charging 1% a year. And guess what? It has trailed the benchmark by... You guessed it, nearly 1% a year. So the fee doesn't seem to be worth the money, according to this lawsuit. So that might say, well, gee, I'm not sure if I should have my money with an individual mutual fund. Maybe I should just go online to a robo advisor. You know, this way, you know, robo advisors are a lot less expensive than traditional financial advisors where they have brick and mortar offices and people and staff to assist. Maybe I should just open an online brokerage account with a robo advisor. Well, the SEC just announced the completion of exams of virtually every robo-advisor in the country and found deficiencies at almost every firm. They found problems with their compliance programs, portfolio programs, their marketing, performance advertising, lack of written procedures, and questioned their ability to provide their fiduciary duty to give advice in every client's best interests. The SEC's report said, quote, When robo-advisors fail to comply with their regulatory obligations, investors may experience poor outcomes. The SEC criticized them for failing to consider each client's risk tolerance, for having conflicts of interest. They said some firms rely on just a few data points before offering financial advice. For example, they may say, what's your date of birth and how much money do you have? and then saying, here's the investment strategy for you. Too little information to be able to give you effective advice. Many failed to periodically update client accounts. They failed to ask if client situations or their investment objectives have changed. More than half of robo-advisors, the SEC said, have been running advertising, featuring misleading statements and quote-unquote vague and unsubstantiated claims about their services, investment options, performance expectations, and their fees. And in particular, the SEC says that a lot of these firms misrepresented SIPC protection. That's the Securities Investors Protection Corp. That's like to Wall Street what FDIC is to banks. They were implying that that they have SIPC protection, meaning that your account would be protected if the market crashed. That's not true. That's not what SIPC does at all. It doesn't protect you against market losses. They also say some firms used the logos of ABC, CNN, and Forbes without explaining the reference. And finally, they said that some of these referred to positive commentaries by third parties without disclosing the fact that those third parties were often compensated to say what they were saying. So... Is robo the answer? Is that the direction you should go into? I'm not so sure. I think instead, all you need to do is your reasonable due diligence. Shop for a financial advisor the way you would for any product you're familiar with, washing machines or automobiles. You know how the game works. You know what it is you want and you know what it is you need. You simply ask the advisor if they provide those services, ask them how much their fees are, have them share with you their ADV. This is the federal disclosure document that shows their fees, their experience, the services they provide, and then evaluate annually with your advisor, are you satisfied with the service? Have you been in contact with the advisor in a sufficient number of times throughout the year to your satisfaction... If your life is stable and there's nothing unusual going on, no developments of any kind, you haven't gotten a new job, there hasn't been any marital status change, nobody born or died during the year, you haven't moved, you haven't bought or sold property, you know nothing is different. Well, you might talk to the advisor once or twice a year. That's plenty. On the other hand, if something dynamic is happening, you're changing jobs, you're getting married, your daughter had a baby, you've looked for a new job, you've got a windfall from an inheritance and you need to figure out how to invest it, well, you might talk to your advisor a couple of times a week. Financial advice is kind of like going to the doctor. If you're healthy, an annual checkup's probably just fine. If you're really sick, you're probably talking or even seeing your doctor on a daily basis. And so the extent that you're in contact should be reflective of your circumstances. And as your circumstances change, the level of contact should change as well. Don't be an orphan. Don't let yourself be treated as an orphan, but don't assume That the alternatives of doing it on your own by going to mutual funds directly by yourself or going online where you're not getting any human interaction, where you can't ask any questions, where there's nobody to act as a sounding board to evaluate the thought process you have, don't assume that that's the answer either. If you're trying to figure it out, the best thing you can do, just like when buying that washing machine, is to do comparison shopping. You'll never know if that advisor's any good until you compare them to another advisor. And so that's why, if you're shopping, talk to two or three. And even if you have an advisor, it might make sense to get a second opinion when you're getting new and different levels of advice. At Edelman Financial Engines, we have a checklist for you on the key questions you should ask when interviewing a financial advisor. It's on our website at rickedelman.com, free, available for you anytime you want. I'm Rick Edelman. You're listening to The Truth About Money, 888-PLAN-RICK, rickedelman.com.
0: of the New York Times bestseller, The Truth About Your Future, coming up on The Rick Edelman Show.
1: Let's take a phone call here on The Rick Edelman Show. Off to Danville, California to say hi to Eric. And how can I help you, sir? Well, I was listening to the show last week from the lady uh, in La Jolla, California, and I just wanted to ask you why you didn't suggest that she uh, invest in some real estate possibly for this uh, person to occupy. So to help people recall this, uh, a woman called and and wanted to know how she could help a friend of hers who didn't have a lot of money, needed a place to live, and she wanted to support her friend by giving her $1,000 a month toward her housing. Uh, and so, Eric, you want to know why I didn't recommend that she buy a property for her? Yeah. Well,. That wasn't really the conversation. First of all, giving her a thousand dollars a month is a whole lot different than spending a half a million dollars to buy a piece of real estate. Second, does she want to become a landlord? And what is she going to do if her friend uh, doesn't make the payments? And is her friend going to be any more able to make the payments on the property that she then buys, as opposed to the property that the friend is now in? Uh, and I'm not even sure if she could afford the half a million dollars. We didn't get into that kind of a conversation. From the nature of her question, it never occurred to me that she might be able to afford that, would even contemplate buying a piece of real estate. But you're right. It is certainly something that could be contemplated, I would imagine. Um, but I would be pretty hesitant uh, to doing that unless it was an, a, an extremely close relationship with a very high degree of confidence in all parties being able to undertake the effort and sustain the commitment associated with it. But I suppose if there was plenty of money available, sure, why not? Buy her a house and live happily ever after. Uh, I'm not sure it's terribly realistic, but sure, if it works, it works. My goal was trying to remove the monthly exchange of money or interaction of that money between uh, the giver and the, and the recipient. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Instead of her having to come up with a thousand bucks a month, but you're demanding that she comes up with five hundred grand right now. I think I'd rather go with a thousand a month. Well, for a thousand a month, that's that's a pretty expensive way to uh, unload a friend, too. Uh, Well, that's something that has to be taken into consideration, doesn't it, is the nature of the relationship. You know what they say when you lend money to a friend, be prepared to lose the money or the friend. (laughs) Eric, thank you so much for calling. That was Eric in Danville, California, here on The Rick Edelman Show. Time now for everybody's favorite segment of the program, a visit by my wife, Jean Edelman, founder here at Edelman Financial Engines and a degree in consumer economics and nutrition, expert in macrobiotic cooking. Here's Jean.
0: Hello, everyone. Great to be here. Always fun to share. So, this week I want to talk about plants in our diet. We are entering the time of year where we focus on food. We're planning meals for our family gatherings, time with friends. And if your family's like mine, it's all about the tradition and the foods we grew up with. As I've shared before, I don't wish to go down the health path of my elders. I want a different health path. And so I've challenged myself and I want to challenge all of us to find new ways to prepare some of our favorite dishes. You know, the ones, the ones that are loaded with the butter and the sugar, the ones that we really love. (laughs) There's a great website and magazine called Forks Over Knives. This month, the article that got my attention was how putting more plant-based meals in our diet can help reduce inflammation, can help us feel more energetic, can possibly help us lose a few pounds, reduce our cholesterol, and improve our gut health. Well, that got my attention. Also, there's research that's showing that lifestyle changes, including a plant-based diet along with managing our stress, can lengthen our telomeres. What are our telomeres? They are the caps at the end of our chromosomes that help keep our DNA stable. And this means that if we can change our telomeres, if we can change our lifestyle and include more plant-based foods, it means that our cells and tissues will age more slowly. And since shortened telomeres are associated with aging and early death, well, I think if we put it all together, it means that we can have a healthier life. So I wish to get into the nitty gritty and share some alternatives for the butter and the sugar and the thickeners. For a butter alternative, we can use applesauce, we can use avocados, we can use pumpkin, and we can use mashed bananas. For sugar alternatives, we could again use applesauce. We can use dates, we can use maple syrup, we can use mashed bananas. And here's a new one for you: monk fruit. Monk fruit is actually a fruit that they have made a very healthy sugar out of. It is good for our glycemic value. So something new. How do we think in things? If you're a cook and you make your roux for your cream spinach and your creamed cauliflower, Well, you know, my dad, we always used butter and white flour, but thickener alternatives are pureed white beans. We can also use olive oil and some brown rice flour to make that roux. What about trying some plant-based butters? What about there are so many amazing plant-based cheeses and plant-based milks to use as alternatives in our thickening agents? And how about our flours? There are so many alternatives to the traditional white baking flour. There's brown rice flour, chickpea flour, buckwheat flour, teff flour, and all these flour alternatives have actually more protein. And so they're better for us. Look up Bob's Red Mill. They have wonderful variety of flours and you may find some that you really like. Cooking alternatives. So instead of the heavy cooking, try some steaming, try some blanching. Try some water saute. And when we roast, maybe just roast with a little bit of light olive oil and a pinch of salt. I know this is a nitty-gritty cooking class, and it's kind of fun, but I just want to challenge you to engage and find these new ways to improve our health. We control what we eat. We change our health path. And if you're going to bring a dish to someone's home for Thanksgiving or an event, Try preparing it in your alternative way with these alternatives and see. You know what? I bet nobody will notice and they're going to say how wonderful it is. So can you guess what my word of the week is? It's plant. The P is for plenty. There are plenty of alternatives now. Have fun walking the aisles in our food stores, reading labels, and getting to know what these new alternatives are. And you know what? They're not always going to be a home run. I can't tell you how many dishes I've made, and I've ended up putting them in the compost pile. But, you know, it's learning. It's fun. It's challenging ourselves. So plenty, plenty of alternatives. The L is for life. Life is about learning and finding something new and challenging our health. And I'm telling you what, if we can change our telomeres, changing our food, we can change our health. The A is for abundant... We are so blessed with these supermarkets, and they are filled to the brim with fruits and vegetables, and variety is the key. Just go try a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and it's going to make our dinner so much more fun. The N is for nourish. Think about taking in the life and the energy of these vegetables and eating all the colors, the colors of the carrots and squashes and all of our greens they fuel cells with the vitamins and minerals. So nourish. And the tea is for taste. When we allow these fresh foods to just be what they are instead of covering them in heavy salt and butter and cream sauces, we can truly taste the food we are eating. So if you're looking to make a health change, I encourage you to check out ForksOverKnives.com. They have a website. You can put the app on your phone. They have magazines. It's just a nice way to have a nice alternative in front of you so you can make a new recipe. We can take our health into our own hands and we can change our health path. Take it one day at a time, take it one meal at a time, take it one bite at a time. And before you know it, you will see changes and see that these changes are easy. You will feel better and you will have more energy. And you will be amazed at how these small changes go a long way for a happy and healthy life. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful week. Have fun preparing these dishes. And think about the nourishment and nutrition that you're bringing to your family and friends. Take care.
1: Thanks, Jean, for your visit. As always, thanks for joining us on the show today. Remember, our podcast has even more of your calls and important info when considering college loans. All that and more on this week's podcast at rickedelman.com. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. See you next week.